We turn in sacred scripture to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We read the first 21 verses. Jeremiah 31. When we think of Jeremiah, we think of judgment, we think of God's word upon an apostatizing and really an apostate people. Jeremiah lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. He had to bring a hard word. In Jeremiah 30 through 33, though, we have uh, what's sometimes referred to as the book of consolation, kind of a book within the book of Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33 where God speaks a word of comfort to His people. And that's where we find the passage this morning, Jeremiah 31. At the same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travaileth with child together. A great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel." And Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him, as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, and shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord, For wheat, and for wine, and for oil, and for the young of the flock and of the herd. And their soul shall be as a watered garden, and they shall not sorrow any more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance, both young men and old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, and will comfort them, and make them rejoice from their sorrow. And I will satiate, or satiate, the soul of the priests with fatness, And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, 
refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. Thus saith the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping and thine eyes from tears. For thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy. And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. I have surely heard, now these verses especially, 18 and 19, we're going to look at in the preaching. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned, I repented, and after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Now God begins again to speak. Is Ephraim my dear son? Meaning this, isn't Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. As I said, we're going to look especially at verses 18 and 19. We read this passage in connection with Lord's Day 33 of the Catechism. It's on the basis of this passage and many other passages that we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism as it's found in Lord's Day 33. Page 19 in the back of the Psalter. Let me actually begin by reading question and answer 87. Because there it brings up the idea of conversion. Question and answer 87. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? By no means. For the Holy Scripture declares that no unchaste person, idolater, adulterer, thief, covetous man, drunkard, slanderer, robber, or any such like, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And now we revisit that idea of conversion. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? This we'll look at more next time, Lord willing. Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to His glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the last time that we were in the catechism, we looked at the subject of good works. Specifically, if you remember, we looked at the positive place and function of good works in the life of the Christian. We looked at the necessity of good works, 
or the inevitability of good works. We looked at the purpose of good works, and we looked at the profit or the benefit of good works. Those were the three points of the sermon last time. If someone is a child of God, he will bring forth good works. Now, in the course of the catechism's treatment of good works, the catechism has brought up the idea of conversion. And we read that from question 87. Cannot they then be saved who, continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives, are not converted to God? And there you have the catechism introducing the concept of conversion. And the connection between good works and conversion is very intimate. The connection is this. If it is inevitable that the child of God bring forth good works, then it is also inevitable that the child of God live a life of conversion. A Christian will live the life of conversion exactly because it is through that life of conversion that he brings forth the inevitable fruit of good works. So good works and conversion go inseparably together. And so now here with Lord's Day 33, as we proceed in the catechism, the question that we're really looking at is this. How do good works arise in the life of the Christian? We know the necessity of good works and the purpose of good works and the profit of good works. We've looked at that. But now the question is, how are good works brought forth? Well, they are brought forth as one lives the life of conversion. Through the life of conversion, good works are brought forth. So that's what we look at this morning, the idea of conversion. And even before we begin this study, there's a very practical question that comes to us. Beloved, what does your life look like? Is it a life of conversion? That's what the Christian life is. That's what a life of thankfulness looks like. It is a life of constant daily conversion. This morning, we look at this idea of conversion, especially by looking at Jeremiah chapter 31. We take as our theme, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. We look at three things. First, we look at the idea of conversion. Second, we look specifically at the two parts of conversion. And then third, very briefly, the sure fruit of conversion. Because there are so many aspects to the topic of conversion, I want to divide our treatment of conversion in this section to three main questions. First, what is conversion? Second, when does conversion take place? And third, whose is the work of conversion? What is conversion? When does it take place? And whose is the work of conversion? So first, what is conversion? Conversion is a complete and radical turning about in a spiritual, ethical sense. Conversion is a turning. That's what the word means, a turning. You're walking in one direction. I teach the catechism students. You're walking in one direction, and you stop, and you are turned. You turn, and you walk in the opposite direction. Conversion is a complete and radical turning about in a spiritual, ethical sense of the word. So that conversion is a turning from Satan to God, from the path of iniquity to the path of righteousness, from darkness to light, from corruption to holiness. By nature, the sinner is motivated by enmity against God. 
By nature, the sinner is a child of wrath, totally depraved, wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. And as a result, his whole life is directed in that way of darkness and sin. He loves the darkness rather than the light. His heart and his mind and his will and all his desires and inclinations turn away from God and are enslaved to the will of sin. And because of that, his outward walk and outward life is also turned in the path of unrighteousness. He walks away from God, contrary to God's commandments. In conversion, a turning takes place. The sinner turns away from all of this and turns to the living God. His hatred for God is turned into a love for God. His darkness is turned into life. His love of iniquity is turned into a love for God and righteousness and God's commandments. His members, which he had been yielding as instruments of unrighteousness, he now yields them as instruments of righteousness unto God. That's conversion. A complete and radical turning about in a spiritual, ethical sense. By complete, we mean That this is a turning about of the whole man. Not just his outward behavior, but his whole man, his inward life also. Conversion is not a mere external reformation. Not a, a simple behavior modification. Going through a checklist of things that I'm supposed to do. But conversion is a turning about of my outward walk of life. That's rooted in an inward change of the heart and the mind and the will and all the affections. It's a complete turning about from sin to God. And conversion, therefore, is also radical. A complete and radical turning. It's radical in the sense that it is a a 180 degree turn. Instead of loving sin, there is hatred for sin. As sin, not just the consequences of sin, but sin itself, I hate And it's not just a turning away from sin, some sin, and a keeping of some of God's precepts, but it is a fundamental hatred for all sin and a fundamental delight in all the precepts of God. That's conversion. So that's what conversion is. The second question we want to ask is this. When does this conversion take place? Well, it begins at the moment of regeneration. It begins at that moment when the Holy Spirit enters your heart, when the Holy Spirit engrafts you into Jesus Christ by a true and living faith, and when the Holy Spirit raises you from spiritual death to spiritual life. In that very moment of regeneration, there is a turning that takes place, a turning for the very first time. In our hearts, in the very center of our being, there is a turning. And there is a turning that takes place because there's a profound change that has taken place. We're given new hearts. A heart of stone has been exchanged for a heart of flesh. We are made new creatures in Christ, restored to the image of Christ. We are given the new man. So that the new man is now established on the throne in my hearts, ruling on the throne. The old man has been cast off the throne. The old man, we can even say, is crucified, dead, and buried. From the point of view that he sits no longer on the throne. 
The new man is enthroned. And consequently, we are turned to the living God. So that instead of hating God, we love Him. Instead of rebelling against Him, we serve Him. And living out of that new heart, we turn and we begin walking as the children of God. Conversion begins at the moment of regeneration. And yet, as I often teach the catechism students, in fact, I taught them this this past Monday evening, it's always helpful for us to make a distinction between those two concepts, regeneration and conversion. Conversion begins at the time of regeneration, but whereas regeneration usually refers, commonly refers to that initial one-time event where the child of God is raised from death to life, conversion, on the other hand, refers to the continual, lifelong experience of constantly turning from sin to God. It starts at that time when we're raised to spiritual life, but then it continues on for the rest of our lives. And that's the case because although in regeneration we're given the new man, the fact is, we still have the old man. Yes, the new man is sitting on the throne in our hearts, The old man has been cast off the throne, but the old man still dwells in our flesh. And so now there's this constant warfare, this constant struggle between the new man and the old man. Because that old man, that old nature, that sinful flesh, wants to get back on the throne. And so there's this constant activity of putting to death that old man, turning from sin and living out of the new man and turning to God. And that's the activity of conversion. It's a lifelong activity. So again, to be more clear, when does conversion take place? Well, for some people, they have a sudden, a very sudden initial turning away from sin. So that some people can point to the day and the hour when they were converted. For example, think of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and changed his heart. We often refer to that as Paul's conversion experience. That's when he was turned for the very first time. In the very center of his being, he was changed, given a new heart. So that there was a turning. Instead of attacking the church, he now loved the church. Instead of rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah, he now embraces Jesus as the promised Messiah. Think of Manasseh in his jail cell in Babylon. He was converted from idolatry to the worship of Jehovah. However, for other people, there is not that experience. The beginning of their life of conversion was bound up in the early years of their childhood. Maybe they were regenerated as an infant, and there was never a day when they didn't know the Lord as their Savior. They were regenerated at a very young age, and therefore... Living the life of conversion has been something that they've been doing since before they were even aware of it. Their parents have been really teaching them to live this life of conversion before they were even aware of it. And and maybe that's the experience that many of us have had. That's the experience that I know of for myself. I I think that's the usual. That is the experience usually of of the one who's grown up as the child of God in the midst of the church. And that's a very blessed thing to have. Now for others, maybe they were regenerated as an adult, but still, it's hard to discern 
when they first actually began to turn from their sin. They didn't have that flash moment. But as an adult, it was a more gradual thing. The point is, conversion begins at regeneration, and it's an activity that continues to take place throughout the believer's entire life. The third question that we want to ask is this. Whose is the work of conversion? Well, we must be emphatic here and say conversion is God's work. In this sense, just as regeneration is God's work of making the dead sinner alive in Christ, just so conversion is God's work of turning the sinner from sin to Christ. That's what we emphasized last time as well. Jesus Christ, having redeemed and delivered us by his, from our sin, by His blood, also renews us also renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. And that work of renewing us involves, it includes, this concept of conversion. Salvation in its entirety is a gift of God's free grace. And that includes the gift of conversion. Conversion, the gift of conversion was purchased for us on the cross of Calvary, and it's worked in us, it's applied to us by the Holy Spirit. God is the one who turns the sinner from his sin to the living God. By nature, we are rebels, children of wrath. Conversion is impossible with man. But God, in an act of grace, turns us from sin to himself. He performs this complete and radical change within us by the sweet operations of his Holy Spirit. And this is a daily reality. Daily, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God is turning us. And apart from the Holy Spirit, and apart from the new man in us, which is given us in God's grace, we cannot and will not convert. We sang it already this morning. Psalm 80, verse 19. The psalmist prays, Turn us again, O Lord of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. At the same time, as we say all of that, we should understand that conversion is an activity God works within us so that we are the ones who are turning. God's work of conversion does not leave us inactive like a stock and block. No, but God turns us. And so we, as living, rational, moral creatures, turn. In conversion, God changes the mind. And the sinner begins to see things in a new spiritual light. In conversion, God turns the will and the sinner begins to hate sin and love righteousness. Man's activity of turning is the fruit of God's grace at work in the heart. And that kind of language is also very familiar to us from the Scriptures. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In Acts 3 verse 19, the apostle Peter gives this command, a very striking command. He says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. And in the parable of the prodigal son, conversion is pictured in that the prodigal son, when he finally is brought to see the rebellion, or the folly of his rebellion, he, what does he say? He says, I will arise and go to my father. That's 
conversion. And really, every command that the Bible gives us involves this idea of conversion. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at God's right hand. Seek those things which are above and not the things on the earth. That's a command to convert. When you put away your sin, when you say no to your sinful lusts, when you live out of the new man and you do what God commands you to do, and you do it in love for God, and you bring forth good works to the glory of God, that's conversion. That's all part of conversion. The Christian life is the daily life of conversion. So, whose is the work of conversion? Well, we can put it this way. Conversion is God's work in the elect, regenerated sinner, whereby, conversion is God's work, whereby we turn from sin and walk in all good works. God has converted me, and I am turning from sin. It is not as if God regenerates me and then leaves it up to me whether I will be converted or or whether I will remain unconverted. No, no. But conversion is a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing and mysterious, so that not only are our wills influenced and actuated by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Canons of Dort, heads 3 and 4, article 12. God turns me and I turn. Now, the reason we read from Jeremiah 31 is because Jeremiah 31 touches on all these things and captures this truth very beautifully and powerfully, especially verses 18 and 19. It emphasizes that conversion is, first of all, God's work. But it also emphasizes that as a result of God's work, man turns from his sin. Notice Jeremiah 31, verse 18. I have surely heard Let me go right to the end. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Those are the words spoken by Ephraim. Now let me read all of verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me... And I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. Now, Ephraim here is simply a reference to God's people. We know that Ephraim was one of the ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, it was the the leader of the ten tribes of Israel. And sometimes in Scripture, God is referring to the ten tribes of Israel when he uses that term Ephraim. But here, in this context, we can simply understand the word Ephraim as referring to all God's people. Not just the northern kingdom, but also Judah. It's referring to God's people. And specifically, it's a reference here to the remnant. The spiritual Ephraim. The spiritual Israel. And what Ephraim says is striking. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. And what does that mean? What is Ephraim saying there? Well, it doesn't just mean when God turns me, then I will be turned. And it doesn't just mean, Lord, please go on with your work of turning me. No, 
what it means is this. Lord, except thou turn me, I shall not be turned. That's the idea here. Lord, conversion is thy work. Lord, except thou turn me, I will not be turned. And that comes out very clearly in the following verse. Verse 19, when Ephraim says, Surely after that I was turned, I repented. And what Ephraim is saying is this, It was only after I was turned that I learned to repent. After God turned me, I turned from my sin. And continuing in verse 19, Ephraim says, And after that I was instructed, I smote upon my thigh. The point is, it was only after Ephraim was turned, and only after he was chastened and instructed, that he saw the folly of his sins, and he sorrowed after them, and he smote upon his thigh with sorrow and grief, and he hated his sins and fled from them. Ephraim is confessing here in these verses, if I had been left to myself, if God had not chastised me, I would not have repented. If I had been left to myself, I would not have turned from my sin. Left to myself, I would only have been hardened in my sin. I would have only grown in my bitterness against God. I would not be smiting upon my thigh if it were not for God instructing me softening my heart, subduing my rebellious spirit, and restoring me to obedience. So Ephraim is confessing, this is the peculiar work of God. And even at the end of verse 18, Ephraim is emphasizing that this work of conversion is a peculiar favor of God, because it's something that God gives to His peculiar people. At the end of verse 18, For thou art the Lord my God. Ephraim says, Thou art the covenant God, and thou art my God, and this work of turning me is a special privilege God has shown me. Because we have this relationship. This covenant relationship. And if you go to the end of verse 19, it emphasizes the same thing. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. What Ephraim is saying there at the end of verse 19 is this. It's only because God has made me ashamed that I am ashamed. I bore the reproach of my youth. I saw my sins for what they were. Very grievous sins against God. And I only saw my sins for what they were because God turned me. If God had not turned me, I would not be ashamed, I would not repent, I would not be smiting my hand upon my thigh. But surely after that I was turned, then I repented. So what this passage emphasizes is that conversion is the work of God. Men do not turn from their sins by their own impulses. It takes divine grace, the power of divine grace to turn men and women from their sin. It's part of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit that we looked at last time. He renews us by His Holy Spirit after His own image. Yet at the same time, as we say all of that, what this passage also teaches us is that after we are turned, we repent. After we are turned, we smite our hand upon our thigh and we become ashamed of our sin. And so you see this passage beautifully captures what conversion is. Conversion is God's work in the elect regenerated sinner 
whereby we repent, whereby we turn and walk in all good works. And ultimately, why do we experience conversion? Because God purchased this gift for us on the cross of Calvary. On the cross, Jesus purchased for us new life, a new life that involves the life of conversion. On the cross, Jesus purchased for us the new man, the right to the new man, which is what wars against the old man. On the cross, Jesus purchased for us the victory over the old man. And conversion could really be described as bringing that victory to realization more and more. We have victory over sin, and now in conversion, the old man is put more and more to death And the new man more and more exercised dominion over me. So that the victory Christ purchased on the cross is now being applied and realized, applied to me and realized in my life. So that's the idea of conversion. And this really leads us into the second point of the sermon. So we know the idea of conversion broadly speaking. Now as we move on and we look also at the catechism, we see that When we look specifically at this idea of conversion, there are two parts. Answer 88. Question and answer 88. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Answer of two parts. Of the mortification of the old man, of the old, and the quickening of the new man. Now notice right away those terms, mortification, quickening. These are action words. And the catechism is emphasizing the activity involved in conversion. First of all, there is the mortification of the old man. And the word mortification means to put to death. The mortification of the old man is the constant putting to death or the stabbing to death of the old man. And the old man is our sinful flesh. Our old man is our sinful nature. That old man doesn't get any better That old man does not improve over time, over our lifetime. That old man remains as totally depraved and wretched and and evil as ever. And we feel it, beloved. We feel that, the motion of sin in our members, inclining us to sin. And as soon as you give that old man of sin a chance to lead you, he will lead you. He is strong. But that old man has been dethroned. And yet, he's constantly striving to regain the mastery over us, to have the rule. And conversion, in part, is that activity of putting that old man to death more and more. Out of the new man in us, we starve and and kill that old man. Or to use the language of Scripture, the mortification of the old man is the putting off of the old man. And it's the crucifying, crucifying of the old man. Now, what does that look like? What is the mortification of the old man? What is this putting to death? Well, the catechism describes it this way. It is a sincere sorrow of heart. That's what killing the old man looks like. It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. The mortification of the old man begins with these words. I'm sorry. I've seen my sin. And I'm sorry for my sin. Truly, 
sorry. And we're sorry not because we've gotten in trouble, not because of the consequences, because the consequences are bitter, but we are sorry because we've dishonored the Lord with our sin. And we have displeased the Lord, our Savior, with our sin. And we know He is good and He is right. And we know He has been so gracious in dealing, in saving us from our sins. And yet here I am, rebelling against Him, choosing to honor and serve self rather than Him. Who do I think I am? And I smite my hand upon my thigh. And I say, sorry. And I hate my sin. And I declare warfare on my sin. And I militate against my sin. And I flee my sin. That's the mortification of the old man. When I think of conversion, I think of Naomi. Remember Naomi? Turning from her rebellious life in Moab. And finally deciding to flee her wicked life by packing her bags and making that difficult but, and humbling but necessary return trip to Israel, to Bethlehem. That's conversion for Naomi. When I think of conversion, I think of Joseph running away from Potiphar's wife. Remember what he said? He was a sinful man just like you and me. He knew the lust of the flesh. And what did he say? How shall I do this thing and sin against God? And he ran away. That's conversion. When I think of conversion, I think of that man struggling against pornography. And he says, I need to be done. I need to be done with this. I hate this sin. It's disgusting to me. He sees the destruction and the bondage of it. It's enslaving him. And so what does he do? He tells his wife his struggles. He gets accountability. He perhaps even gets rid of his cell phone and his internet. Anything to get rid of of the sin. It's a complete and radical turning. That's what conversion is. I hate it. I'm serious about it. When I think of conversion, I think of the woman who has just exploded in an outrage, in an outburst of rage and anger against her children. And then she's suddenly smitten. And she's brought to see how she wasn't serving the Lord, but she was kind of acting how Moses acted when he struck the rock when he was at his wit's end with the people. And she weeps because she sees her sin and she hates her sin and she goes to her children and she expresses sorrow and she goes to God and she prays fervently that she might make progress in putting away this sin. That's conversion. When I think of conversion, I think of the man who is prone to a judgmental spirit maybe prone to a judgmental spirit towards his own wife. And he sees it. And he's catching himself more and more when he behaves this way. And he sees how arrogant and proud his sinful heart is. And he smites his hand upon his chest or upon his thigh and he says, Lord, I am sorry. And he prays for the grace to put away this sin. Let me be a better man. Help me, Lord. That's conversion. Or or I should say, that's the mortification of the old man. I see the young man who struggles with using profane language at work. And he knows it's not right. And he does want to put it away. He knows it displeases the Lord. And he works on it instead of tolerating it. That's conversion. I see the young woman who is tempted to dress in such a way 
that she might make others envy her. She's tempted to flaunt her figure. And then she sees the vanity of her sinful nature, and she's humbled by it. I see the boy who knows he's just openly disobeyed his mother, and he knows it's wrong. He knows it's not right, and he says sorry. And he is resolved in his own little childlike way to honor his mother better in a way that truly pleases the Lord. That's conversion. That's the mortification of the old man, the putting to death of self, denying ourselves. You see, by nature, we love ourselves, and in mortification, we are denying ourselves. And that's just the negative. That's the one part of conversion. The second part, the positive part, is also there as well, the quickening of the new man. And the word quickening means to make alive. The quickening of the new man refers to the living out of the new man more and more. Putting on the new man in Christ. And we understand it's only because of the new man that we can mortify the old man. But these things go together. We mortify the old man out of the power of the new man. And the catechism describes the quickening of the new man this way. It is a sincere joy. A sincere joy of heart in God. I take joy in God through Christ. And with love and delight, I live according to the will of God in all good works. So the quickening of the new man begins with joy. We hate sin and we joy in God's commands. We're joyful of who we are in Christ. We're happy that God has made us new creatures in Christ. That He has filled us with His Holy Spirit. He has delivered us from the bondage and tyranny of sin. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. I don't have to serve sin. I don't have to. But I've been set free to live before God in all good works. And there's joy with that. The quickening of the new man begins with joy. I'm truly happy in this life God has given me. I'm joyful over the forgiveness of sins. And what comes as a result of that joy is that with love and delight we live according to the will of God in all good works. By the new man in us we strive to live out our whole lives out of the new man of Christ, out of the new life Christ has given us. We do what is right in the sight of God. We we do love our neighbor as ourselves. We're striving to. We have God in all our thoughts. We're striving to. And we obey His commandments with joy. As a husband, I endeavor to show the love of Christ towards my wife in every way. Laying down my life for her is my joy because I know this is what God wants me to do with my life. As a wife, I endeavor to help my husband so that together we're serving the Lord because I know that's what the Lord, my King, wants me to do with my life. I honor my parents. I honor my elders. I honor the policeman. I do good to my neighbor. I truly love my neighbor. I do want to do him good. Sometimes I really have to fight against my old man of sin who hates my neighbor. But forgetting myself, I seek the Lord's glory. And I do so with joy because I know this life, even this life of warfare, I don't deserve to live this life. That's the quickening of the new man. And just as I must starve and choke the old man, So, I must feed the new man 
So I come to church and I feed on God's word. And and when I'm struggling with sin, when I'm struggling with discouragement and thinking right thoughts, I go to God's word. I, I, I meditate on God's word. I exercise the gracious gift of prayer. I, I plead for God's mercies. And I do all of this not as, a, not as a checklist of things that a Christian is supposed to do, but I do it with love, with joy and delight. Partly because this is what the new man in me wants, and also because I know I need these things to further strengthen me as I endeavor to live that life of praise and glory to God. That's the life of conversion. You see, before I was turned, I was like a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. I was rebellious. I was wanting to go my own way, like that bullock that didn't know how to plow the field straight, that just wanted to make a mess and go in every direction. That was me. But now, after God has turned me, I choose to walk in the path that He is leading me down. I delight in serving the Master, being of use in the Master's kingdom. That's the life of conversion. And beloved, that's what we all have in common as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's why we're all here too, isn't it? We're all pursuing that. And we do come to church to worship and to live out that life of conversion and to be strengthened, to continue to live that life of conversion. All of us as newborn children of God, as God's people, we're all busy day by day in this life of conversion. And that also produces in us great humility in our dealings with each other. It produces patience with each other because we all know the struggle. We all know the fight. And we all know how hard it can be. But but we also know God's grace is sufficient. And we look to Him together to help us. Because this is a life He has begun in us. And this is life he will preserve and strengthen until he calls us to glory. Well, what is the sure fruit of conversion? We've looked at the idea of conversion. We've looked at the two parts of conversion. What is the fruit of conversion? Well, this kind of takes us back to where we began in the introduction. The sure fruit is a life of good works. And this is how you know whether conversion is true whether conversion is real or whether it's simply a fake and a counterfeit. You know them by their fruits. True conversion is seen in good works. A changed heart will show itself in a changed life, a changed attitude, a changed way of talking, a changed life. The evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is shown by a life of good works, delighting to do what's right. Christ has redeemed us so that we might be a people zealous of good works. That's the life of conversion. God turns us, and we are turned. So that by the sweet operations of the Holy Spirit, we live this life of conversion. So the sure fruit is a life of good works. We've already looked at good works. Last time we were in the catechism, we looked at the necessity of good works. We looked at the purpose of good works. We looked at the fruit of good works. Lord willing, next time we're going to revisit good works and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at what good works actually are. Looking at the last question and answer of this Lord's Day. But what are good works? And there's, uh, it's worth looking at this 
in a little bit more detail. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for this life of conversion. Strengthen us in it. Turn us, O Lord, and we shall be turned. And except Thou turn us, we shall not be turned. Lord, showcase Thy power that we might be vessels that showcase Thy power and Thy mercy. That others might behold our good works and glorify Thee who brings forth those good works in us and through us by Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray bless this preaching that it might not only be a blessing to our intellects that we might understand more deeply what these things are, but that it might have an impact on our lives. That we've come here to church not only to be uh, uh, instructed, but so that we might change and that we might grow and that we might turn. Lord, help us all. And may we enjoy Thee and enjoy the delight and the blessing of this wonderful life that Thou hast raised us unto. And we thank Thee, Lord, that there is a victory. There is a sure end. For the battle is Thine. And we are more than conquerors in this battle. And may that comfort us too, Lord. Bless us with all these thoughts. In Thy Son's name we pray. Amen.